Welcome back to the You Do What podcast, where we interview working professionals to better understand what it is they do to make money. I'm Tyler. I'll be your host today. And joining us is my friend Shasta, who holds the title of a forensic engineer. Um, it, this is a completely new field to me. I'd never heard of it. I had to Google just, I mean, practically the spelling of this career. So I'm really excited to have you on and learn a little bit more about what you do. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I, uh, in preparation for this call, I, I was Googling forensic engineers and, and what it is they do. Um, it was described sort of eloquently, I thought, in uh, by saying uh, design is what something should be and forensic engineering is what something is or was, like the factual representation of that. Um, so that sort of helped me kind of triangulate a little bit about what you might be doing. Um, we looked at some salaries. We'll get into that later. But uh, is that even like directionally accurate? Uh, so I think the simplest way I've heard someone describe it, and, and I myself um, have a background in structural engineering. So I focus on buildings and other structures. But the simplest way I think I've heard someone describe it is it's like CSI for buildings. So once a building has already been constructed and it's operable, we come in and we're investigating some type of problem. So trying to figure out what went wrong, was there, what's the problem, how do we fix it, can we fix it, what's the extent of damage, those types of questions. So we're really trying to investigate structures that are already in place rather than new design. Okay, so when you say CSI, like something's already gone wrong by the time they call Shasta? Yes, typically. <laughs> typically. So we're not really involved in new design usually. It's um, it could be after some type of weather event, they've had some damage occur. It could be either during or after construction. There's some type of construction defect or design defect that, that is causing problems at a, at a building. Um, we, as a civil engineer, could be some type of drainage issue. So there's always some type of problem, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, simplistly put, um, that, we, that we're looking at trying to figure out what the answer is to solve that problem. Is there any type of like prototypical case study or, or sort of very common example that's used in your field where they say like this happened and here are the first steps to kind of figuring it out and walking through that process. Can you think of anything like that? I mean, I guess it comes down to the scientific method. You know, we always look at, you know, what's our hypothesis, I guess, of, the reason why, and then we come up with ways to test that hypothesis, whether it's through physical testing or non-destructive testing, looking at materials, taking apart parts of the building to see what's actually there, because we all know what is designed does not always get put into place in practice. So, you know, figure out what, what, what's actually there, how it's interacting, and then using all of that data that we collect to be able to make our opinions, our final conclusions. Okay. And is, are you responsible for both the, like going out into the field and investigating and collecting data and the analysis of the data to come to a conclusion? Are you kind of like a one-stop shop for that whole process? Or do you have, there's your team set up differently that some people go, you know, maybe, I don't know, this might sound ridiculous, but to the building to collect samples or to take photographs or to, investigate with the, you know, the 
building firm was the material and the design actually used in the production like is is are those yeah. roles separate or is that all you it's all us as an, as the engineer you know we're going to want to put our eyes on it we're going to be able to want to see it um we may be working with a team so larger projects involve multiple people collecting just a wide array of data um but if i am the engineer in charge on that project i am involved in the whole the whole thing from start to finish so um, it, you know, part of the job involves going out on the job site, um, physically making visual observations, as well as uh, you know, collecting testing data and kind of putting it all together, ultimately into some type of report for our clients, answering their questions for them. Okay. And you just mentioned like your clients. So you work at a, a consulting firm? Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. Do, do any, do you know... Do companies ever hire their own forensic engineers or is this sort of always like an outsourced service? I would say typically it's outsourced. Um, just kind of the optics of having your in-house engineers. It, I guess it depends oh. on, the, on, the, on the location, on the type of company. But, sure. you know, we, we do work a lot for insurance adjusters. We work a lot for attorneys. Sometimes we have building, building owners or contractors uh, contacting us. but um, typically it's a third party going out to do the investigation. That makes sense, right? A, a building has some structural failure and then, you know, the, the building company is like, oh, we'll put our own team right on that, right? We'll figure out what we did wrong. Like, it's a little like, well, something yeah. already went wrong. We want some, some trust or usually, some... Uh... Yeah, usually by the time we get involved, it's additional third parties. Um, you know, there could be some in-house uh, during construction, some, I guess, Someone could be problem solving during construction if they're having issues with you know, the building materials getting together or, you know, that collaboration usually occurs between the contractors and the design team. Um, but if they need additional help, they bring in consultants. Typically, it can be brought in during the design phase or usually in the forensic side of it. It's after the case once there's already some type of issue. Okay. Well, what... Um... What position at, at your clients are you usually talking to? Is this somebody who's like a quality manager or like, or are they like an owner or, or who's, what level are you dealing at at the client side? It depends on the project. So uh, like I said, probably our top two clients usually are attorneys. So that's where we would provide some litigation support. They'd be representing either you know, a plaintiff or defense. Um, whether it be homeowners, business owners, um, bedside contractors, subcontractors. Um, so usually our communication goes through an attorney in that case. Um, if it is more a, we're working for an insurance company because a homeowner or a uh, business owner has made some type of claim against their policy and they need that investigated to determine coverage on their end you know we would we would provide this the answers to their questions and they would apply coverage um so in that case we're usually dealing with insurance adjusters mm -hmm. um, people who are who are handling the claims after they've been made so if there's like a hailstorm and my car gets or well my, my roof gets damaged real bad and i need to replace it typically an insurance adjuster will come out look at it and you know, I, in my experience, they eyeball it and they're like, yep, 
this was the hailstorm, right? This qualifies for damage. We'll, we'll, you know, adhere to our policy. Mm-hmm. In order to get someone like a forensic engineer involved, does it, is it just like the scale has to be bigger, like a big commercial property roof or, or are the details just not obvious to the adjuster? Therefore they need somebody to look into this further. Yeah, size typically doesn't matter of the project. I mean, we we get involved on single family homes as up to you know large multi million dollar structures. Um, it's usually when it's the gray area. So if it is obvious to the adjuster who may or may not have a ton of experience in looking at that type of damage, hail damage in that example, if it's obvious, they're going to write the check. You know, we have hail come through the south here. That reaches to you know three four inches. You know, grapefruits falling out of the sky. They're not. They don't need us on those jobs. They know there's sure. damage. And they're going to write a write a check and get the 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 owner hold. But when there's when it's not so obvious, or maybe uh, you know it, it's not clear to them, that's usually when we get involved. Are there any uh, any examples that you can think of that were just kind of. Uh, maybe a little bit mind blowing that led to something that was bad without, you know, maybe giving away names, but like where a builder, you know, didn't use fire retardant material and the whole thing went up in flames or, or where, where like somehow you'd gone through the scientific method and you discovered something that was just kind of wild. Is that anything you can think Uh, of? I think I could, one comes to mind, um, a larger, uh, football stadium was constructed um, went through design, construction, open to the public, and they started seeing um, some fractures in their concrete. Ooh. And so it drew the attention, obviously, to owners and, and the public. And so they got the engineers out to start investigating. And I think ultimately, big picture, it was under design in the fact that it was under design both for the vertical loads, the gravity loads that would be applied, but also a complete lack of lateral design. So like wind loads, <laughs> any oh. type of lateral. So it's completely missing a lateral res- resisting system in, in some instances, in some areas of that design. So that was a shocker. It involved a lot of testing, the big stadium, uh, a lot of testing and a lot of repair <laughs> to get it whole. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, that yeah. would be something. So that was... Yeah, that was one that I got to I got to do a wide variety of different testing methods, non-destructive and destructive, um, and also got to see a variety of different repair strategies get implemented in one structure. So that was pretty cool. That is fascinating. Oh, wow. I, I can probably <laughs> talk about that project for quite some time. That, that, that sounds just awesome. What now? I know you, you have a, a master's in structural engineering from UT Austin. Is that right? That's correct. So for somebody with that level of expertise, when you, if you were to show up at this football stadium and you see these fissures in the concrete, you know, to me, I'm thinking like, I don't know, maybe it got wet. I have no idea. But but for somebody of your background, you look at this and you're able to somewhat quickly look left and right and up and down and say, well, this is likely a, a vertical load issue. And that would like back to the scientific method, right? Like, would lead to the next test, which would lead to the next test, so on and so forth, right? Like you, you would just see things that, that normal people who don't study this would never see. Yeah. Unfortunately I see too much. It makes, uh, it makes 
being a homeowner and trying to buy a home, extremely difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. I can imagine too much. Like you've, you've, you've gotten a peek behind the curtain of how things really work and now you can't unsee it, huh? Yeah. And unfortunately that peak has revealed some, some gaps in construction that I just don't want to know about. Oh, wow. Yeah. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> um, okay. Wow. Fascinating. So did you, I guess let's take me back to, um, kind of when you were 18, what, uh, did you know that this is what you wanted to get into? Kind of what did you, what did you go for, uh, right out of undergrad? How did you know you wanted to go to college? Kind of, who was yeah. Shasta back at 18? Absolutely not. I did not. I, I wasn't even aware of this field at 18. Um, you know, I had always excelled in school and I knew that I was headed off to university. And so when looking for um, schools that I was interested in, uh, had been taking pretty much any drafting class at my high school that they offered for the last, I don't know, I don't know if I got into it in sophomore year, but at least junior and, and first year, senior year. Um, and so at that point, you know, we were both hand drawing as well as using software to draw floor plans and building elevations. And so at 18, I thought I was going to study architecture. As um, one might. Yep. Yeah. And so <laughs> I had a, a drafting teacher recommend I look into a school down in outside of Detroit called Lawrence Technological University, Lawrence Tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one school that. I had applied to, did you know, they at that point, I don't know if they do this still, they offered like early on-site admission, like you come with your transcripts, do a quick little interview, and I was accepted. <laughs> um, and so I had applied there as well as a couple other schools, um, both all with good architecture programs. So that's what I had planned to study. So I got down to, ultimately, I ended up going to uh, Lawrence Tech, and I showed up for orientation and registration and they had me registering for calculus classes and I was like I was told I was done with my math requirements because I'd passed all my AP classes and lo and behold architects don't need a lot of math sure (laughs) so so I was told that the architecture for the architecture program I wouldn't need any more they're like oh we thought you were we thought you were doing a dual degree with architecture and civil engineering. So these would apply to your civil engineering degree. Never thought of that. But the first year, I think there was only like two classes that overlapped between the two, one of them being just an introduction to civil engineering. And so I thought that would give me a good idea of what is civil engineering. And Mm -hmm. there's there's so many sub-disciplines that I got exposed to during that coursework. I was like, okay, I'm going to stick with this. So headed down the, the dual degree path, probably by the end of second year, I knew architecture was not what I wanted to do. <laughs> I knew, I found out that, um, you know, conceptual design was really wasn't for me. I was, I, my, my brain functioned more as an engineer. It, it, it gravitated towards the structures side of things rather than the design of the building. So um, was that with it? Was that more of like a you were drawn to problem solving rather than like design creation? Is that kind of what stuck out to yeah. you? Or? Yeah, I think so. I think the through the schooling, um, you, you're required to do multiple design classes, and 
that point, they were just so conceptual and big picture that I was like, you can't construct this. Like my mind was thinking, <laughs> how, how would you physically put this together? I don't either. You'd have to have so much money. Right. Or you couldn't do it, make up new materials because it wasn't possible. So my mind, I just, I, the conceptual side of design was not for me. Um, and I, I definitely gravitated more of the problem solving. So I stuck, it, stuck, stuck with it. I got both degrees. I studied architecture and civil engineering with a focus in structural. That's and kind of a flex a little bit. I'm just going to point that out, that you, <laughs> you showed up to do architecture and they're like, oh, I thought you wanted the, the double major. And you're like, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll just, that's fine. I'll just stick with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> okay. it was, uh, kind of fell into my lap. And yeah. I'm, I'm so thankful that it did because, like I said, it wasn't on my radar and it is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so it wasn't until my last, I, was, I think it's the last month of my last semester of college, I was in a construction management class and we had a guest lecturer come in and talk about, um, he was a forensic engineer, but they focused on like historical restoration to, uh, down in the Detroit area. So there's a lot of historical buildings. Sure. They, they still had to do the investigation to figure out the conditions of the buildings and whether they could be modified or new materials could be applied for that restoration. And so I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting with the investigative side of engineering I had never heard about. <laughs> and so I had, um, I'd always planned to go to get my master's or, you know, that was, that was the way I was going. <laughs> um, and so I had already accepted a, I accepted my position down at UT to their master's program, which focuses on structural engineering as well. And when I got there, the first thing I did was really look up classes around this forensic engineering. I was like, do they offer anything? And at that point, um, they offered two, actually one. One was about forensic engineering. Um, however, it was only offered in this, in the fall semester. And I, being the overachiever, I wanted to get my program done as quickly as possible. So I crammed my master's into one year, a fall, spring, and summer schedule. And so there's no way for me to take the class <laughs> uh, because I had other requirements that I had to do. Um, okay, so, hold on. so, so, so <laughs> just to clarify then, so you went right from Lawrence Tech, like graduated in the spring and then was in UT by the fall? By August, yep. Started school with Donna in August. All right, and, and is, it, is that because... For almost all civil engineering jobs, you're required to have a master. master's. Is that the idea? No, I just like school. I think it came down to that. I like learning. I've always excelled at it. Um, I wanted to have, I guess, hold that additional degree. Yeah, and so sure. It's kind of a, it was more, I guess, personal on that in that regard. Um, I would say industry-wide currently, um, it's not required to have a master's, but it is trending towards that way. It's more emphasized, and mm. I would encourage anyone to pursue their master's um, if they're headed down this road or even into a design job um, as an engineer. Um, so at that point, it was more personal. Um, okay. But it but that, is what... That kind of answers my question that I was going to ask, which is like, you know, the, your coworkers, right? Like the people that are your peers, do they all have master's? Do they, to some of them, some not, I mean, how optional yeah, is this? Cause I think if you're, if you're looking at this career path and, and with a lot of the ones that 
we've had on the show so far, right? Masters seem like pretty good ideas, whether it's an MBA or it's uh, you know, a physician assistant school. Now yeah. we're talking structural engineer. You know, you just it can be daunting, I think, for people to look at and be like, man, just to get started in this thing, I've got I'm out of high school and I've got six more years. Like, woof. But yeah, it's a lot of school. <laughs> it, it is, but it sounds like uh once again, you know, the school kind of it pays off. Just, you know, the education and the the ability to start in your industry with a little extra expertise seems uh like yeah. an advantage here. It it is and actually kind of full circle moment having my architecture degree on top of my engineering actually i i felt like gave me a leg up when starting in this career because in that in that program i studied a lot of how the building went together like the wall systems the roof systems um the building envelope that you didn't get in your engineering degree um the engineering degree was more focused on your materials and your design classes. And so coming out, starting a job in the realm of forensics, I'm looking at buildings. I'm looking to see how they're going together, how these systems, different systems are interacting. I had a, a, a good head start compared to some of my colleagues coming out of engineering school who, who didn't know how a roof went together or the different components of a roof or the components of a wall. So as, as strangely as it was that I went in for architecture and I pivoted to engineering, I'm thankful that I had both. Kind of boomeranged right back to being a very yeah. useful discipline. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so, you, so you somehow managed to graduate in a year uh, from your master's program. And then sure. uh, now, but you said you weren't able to take that forensic engineering class. No. So it ended up that the teacher who taught the forensics class also taught a repair of concrete class, concrete repair class, I think it was. Okay. And he he used a lot of there's a lot of overlap. So it was a good it was good exposure. Um it was through that professor that I actually found my first job. I had asked him to provide um, some recommendations when looking for a job out of school and he was the one that was like, you know, I'm familiar with this company. I think you'd be a great fit. Um, can I pass along your resume? And that's where it ultimately took me. So um, he, the class had, you know, it got into the materials. How do you, how do you, uh, different strategies for repairing concrete, concrete structures, whether it be foundation systems or, you know, the building systems. Um, but I think the biggest reward out of that was kind of you know, meeting him and getting into the next phase of my career. Yeah, really leveraging like that master's network to say like, hey, I'm I'm a good student and I'm doing well and I'm obviously, you know, very ambitious to get this thing done. And I think it sounds like the professor recognized that and then was willing to put kind of his name on the line for for your resume to get you started. So that's that's great. That's a great story. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> now, that's not the uh, you know, you're not still at that company, are you? That uh, first no, one you started? I, I've I've since moved on. Um, I'm at kind of my second job. Since second college, second one. Since. Second one since college. Okay. Yeah. And what uh, do you remember? What your starting salary was at that first job right out of college, or, yeah, right or what? What the school, average would have been? Right out of school uh, with my masters, I was I was brought on at uh, sixty five thousand. Okay, sixty five thousand, and then uh, now is, if it's a consultant type role, 
at some consultant agencies, you're, you know, you're kind of brought in at one level, but if you get up high enough, things can get kind of lucrative when you start making partner or you, you bring in new business. Is that a similar trend in your industry or is it a little more like, you know, structural engineers were like, we're providing a, a function and we're not really translating into like the sales of new business consulting. No, I think it does apply. And uh, I think what we do, I mean, companies have, you know, marketing professionals and business development professionals that do seek out new, new clients and new work. But the, I think the biggest, um, the biggest source of new work or continued work is the relationship that the individual engineer builds with their own clients, with the people that they're working with. So if you're providing good service, good communication, a great work product, they're going to continue to come back to you for, for when they have another question. Um, so I think, you know, building your network starts as fresh out of school when, when you are brought in on as a young engineer and working with licensed professionals, you're starting to build that network and I guess, you know, marketing yourself and your experience to clients every day. Yeah, I totally agree. The best business is the business you already have, right? Repeat customers by, by way of a good business product, right? And, and great service. Uh, now, you are you were structural engineering and now forensic engineering on structures. Is there other disciplines of forensic engineering that is not structures? And what would some of those look like? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there's, I guess you could head down a forensic path in pretty much any uh, discipline. So I've worked with forensic you know, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. We actually, I've, I work with um, forensic architects. So you could hold architecture license rather than doing new design, working on the back end of it, investigating structures um, and, and potentially repair design, if that's what interests you. But um, those engine, I guess, Mechanical, electrical, um, those are the ones I, I've typically worked with. But this could apply to an aeronautical engineer or, uh, you know, you're, it just depends on what you're investigating. So mm -hmm. <laughs> you could be looking at airplanes. You could be looking at marine structures. You could, uh, I think it, it could apply across a wide variety of different disciplines. Yeah. So I, when I used to work in packaging, uh, we had a like an R&D department and a quality department. And uh, a lot of times I would get involved when uh, there was some product malfunction right now. Not not many, many, but like maybe if we make if you make like a 200 million of a certain package and then you have a lot of like 10,000 that weren't very good. And mm -hmm. we would go to a quality manager and he would, he or she would do the root cause analysis and, you know, find out, oh, well, the, the package is turning a little bit gray. That means there's some like titanium oxide in, in some of the raw material that's contributing to this, right? Very root cause. This is what happened. This is how much money it's going to cost. And then, you know, we end up settling with the raw material supplier and say, okay, pay us back for our downline time, whatever. To me, that sounds like a little bit of forensic engineering, but that's just called like quality or quality management. Is there a distinction between those two functions or is it just in forensic engineering, you've got a master's and a certain, you know, 
like niche discipline that you're really, really good at this stuff. And as a quality manager, you might just be tracking down one-off events. I mean, I'm kind of trying to figure out where the line is. I think the line comes down to licensure. So as an engineer, you know, I'm a, a, prof a licensed professional engineer. I have to take exams and get licensed through the states that I work in. Um, and so I think you, you could apply knowledge, you know, you know, firsthand knowledge of what you do to one-off projects or experience that you have, but to be an engineer, to hold that title, you would need to get licensed. Um, I'm going to ask a silly question here. Go ahead. Is that, is that kind of true for like all engineers, like after yes. school? If you want to hold the title of engineer, you need to be licensed. You can't represent oh. yourself as an engineer without a license. I had no idea. Is that, and that's a, a by-state thing? Yes. So the testing can be, um, you can get reciprocity across the state. So you don't sure. have to take a new test in each state, mm -hmm. but you have to show experience, an educational that you have the educational background requirements, the experience requirements, and the testing requirements before you can achieve that those licenses across the individual states you want to work with. Hmm. How That's often do you have to take those tests? Once, but each but there is continuing education requirements. Yeah. Really. So, mm -hmm. um, I believe you know I. I live and work here in Texas. Um, I actually obtained my California license first because at that point in time and still today, you can get your license or with less years of experience. However, there's more testing involved to get it out in California. Um, so here in Texas, if you have a bachelor's degree, you would be required to have four years of experience before you could obtain your license. Thankfully, in the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, maybe maybe less than that, they've decoupled the exam from your experience. So you can take your tests, your exams, as soon as you want, and then just wait for your experience to uh, expire before you apply for the license, which is great because a lot of those tests can be fairly academic in nature. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're in the uh you know in the mindset of taking exams at school and you've got all of that the studying that you've done for schooling i would recommend anyone take all of their exams as soon as possible right the longer right. you wait the more you forget and it's just harder to get back into so um yeah currently in texas it's four years of experience after with a bachelor's and three years of experience if you do hold that uh, master's degree what do you do for experience before you're licensed? I mean, is there a title for that or a typical, you know, I know like rotations in the medical field and stuff like that, but, and I know, you know, to get your journeyman license as an electrician or, or even um, as a plumber, there's like apprenticeship programs, but what does it look like as an engineer? So you would be working under a engineer in charge basically, but um, you are right there, boots on the ground doing the same type of work and you are on site documenting the structures t doing the data collection assisting in the you know analysis you're putting together uh, reports with the engineer in charge um, you are getting the client interaction 
I mean, you are basically doing the same thing you would be doing as a licensed engineer, but gaining all of the knowledge so that you're prepared to do it on your own. So, it, you know, you're asking questions, you're, you're basically soaking up all you can, getting experience from a, a wide variety of projects. Um, hopefully, you have the exposure to a wide variety of projects to kind of figure out what interests you and, and where you want to take your career once you become licensed. So you, to be licensed, you need to show competency in the field that you're working in. So I, like I said, I, I didn't even know what forensic engineering was in school. So it was a lot of on-site training and, and, and experience that I had to gain. Um, and, and that's what the first, that's what those three, four years are for, to gain that experience before you are ready to start practicing on your own. Take me through uh, what a, a work week looks like now. I can kind of imagine the, um, the you know, the, the being on site. Tell me, does that, um, does that require a lot of travel on your part? Like, like hey, I, I have another site I have to go inspect. Uh, when you're in the field doing those inspections, kind of how long are you there? When you're doing your tests, do you do you go to come to an office every day? Is there a lab there? What's the scale of testing? How take me through like a typical week of where you are and kind of what you're doing. Yeah, it can really vary depending on the projects that you're working on. So, and and that varies depending on the company you're working for. So, if you're working for a company who focuses a lot on catastrophe response work, so after hurricanes or tornadoes, large hailstorms, earthquakes. Um, that those types of jobs, I would say, would require a lot more travel um, if you're not in the area that the event occurred. So, um, you know, historically, I have I have provided uh, response to I guess multiple hurricanes that went through Florida, which would require me to travel to Florida because that's not where I live, um, and to make it kind of worth the travel cost. A lot of the times, those um, in the catastrophe response situations, there's a lot of work, obviously. So you're there, you could be there a full week to mm. do just project after project, day after day, as much as you can get done. And then you come home and you would be in the office for a week or two to produce the reports for those projects. So that type of work where it's, it's related to some type of weather event can involve a lot of travel. Um, Currently, I focus, the company I'm at, we, we focus more on you know, litigation support and real large loss type of file, insurance files. Um, and so the, the litigation projects tend to be long, more long-term spread out over a longer time period. So the site time might be one day, two days, you know, a week long if it's a really big project. Um, but you have a lot more time to respond to it. So you're aware of when these site visits are coming up. It's not a, hey, it hailed last night up in Oklahoma. We need you to drive up there. Right. You're kind of setting your own schedule um, ahead of time. So it's easier to plan um, in this season of life, you know, having a young family. It's easier for me to plan and coordinate with my husband where, am I, where I'm going to be during yeah, that week it's or not. Important. So. Yeah, especially like with, uh, you know, with a young family. I know that's something that I've always looked at was, I mean, how much time are you just going to be gone and can you control when those times are, right? Those are really important factors, I think. Now, yeah, when so you talk about long projects, um, 
So, so would this be like, you know, your, your firm is kind of handed like, uh, Hey, come investigate this thing. And then they say like our next court date is two months from now or something. And that's sort of your timeline. Like, all right, I got to get all this stuff done before that. And then, you know, you, you produce the, your report and then I go, okay, well, we're going to reconvene another six months from now or something like, does it drag on? Like, what, what are we talking months, years? Like what, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah. The litigation files, um, are driven a lot by the, the scheduling orders by the courts. So, um, if we get brought on early on in a case, we might have a longer time frame before producing a re report. If we get brought on super last minute and they need a report the next <laughs> the next week, it can be a really quick turn turnaround for the report. But then usually there's some type of you know gap in that for the next step um, in the project. Um, so if it's a larger, more you know multiple parties involved, some type of you know construction defect, design defect type of case, or there might be multiple parties involved in the in the litigation those projects can draw on for years um, if they're not able to settle with the parties and come to some type of agreement before making it all the way through the the litigation system all the way through the court system making it either to an arbitration trial or a jury trial um, those those can draw on multiple years other projects can you know you write a report they go to mediation, the parties can agree on, you know, the, at that point it comes down to money. Right. So are we going to be able to get enough money to fix the problem? If they're mm -hmm. able to agree on something like that, then it, it might be solved quicker. <laughs> Talk to me about the, uh, is, is the culture mostly in office and, and what's a, is there a lab there that you get to do the experiments on and what's that like? So our, uh, a lot of companies, the companies that I've worked for, um, this one, we do not have any in-house materials testing labs. Uh, we usually would outsource that okay, to okay. a lab who has um, professionals, you know, trained to investigate those different materials. Um, for example, your type of, you know, your, your roof gets hit by hail. Um, one part of the investigation could involve taking a, a sample of the roof and sending it to a lab to have it looked at under a microscope, have it pulled apart to look at the different layers um, to see whether or not there's actually been damage to the roof membrane or the covering that isn't visible to the eye. Um, and so some companies have in-house labs where engineers have the experience to do that. Others would send it out to a, a third party. Customer. Okay, that makes me... That makes a little more sense. In my mind, I'm thinking that like I'm going back to this football stadium example. I'm thinking <laughs> that you like you built a to scale replica out of like popsicle sticks and other stuff, and then you like put it in a wind tunnel, and you're like, oh, see, look, it fell over. I told you that this thing was had no lateral, you know. So I guess well, maybe it's not so much that then. Um, so is a lot of the testing results that you're doing like mostly just you know material related or like. Or would you send a damaged piece of something to a lab and ask like how many pounds of pressure did it take for this thing to crack or it could be materials related uh it could be similar to build you know building a physical popsicle stick model we could be building models digitally with software to oh, yeah. see how it's reacting so that that we would do kind of in that would we, we would do in-house um but 
the material side of it usually gets outsourced. So if you're looking, you know, you know, concrete can have a wide variety of, you know, it, it's made with multiple components. So if there's some type of um, contaminant mm -hmm. in those components that's causing the concrete to not be strong enough or to deteriorate quickly, like those types of things you, you would need to send off to have it looked at through a microscope, get the material uh, tested rather than just physically looking at it by eye. What, uh, that makes a lot of sense. What, what, what's, um, what's kind of typically next, uh, for somebody who's been a forensic engineer, uh, had a successful career. Is there like leadership opportunities that, you know, that happens a lot in business where they end up, you know, they manage a department of forensic engineers or, or is there other, um, or, or maybe, do you ever see other people that have similar backgrounds and degrees, but they're doing something else that's like way more lucrative where you're like, you know, like, oh, the real money in structural engineering, everybody knows is to work in casinos or something like, is there, <laughs> is there some other, you know, discipline that, um, that kind of mid career like this, some people might have their eyes on? Not that I've looked into. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I'm not familiar where, where this extra money is, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> No, I think I think it comes down to, you know, the company you work for, how it's structured, where mm -hmm. you see your career progressing. If you want to head down a management path, uh, typically in this, I guess, in the companies we've, I've worked for, you can progress to, you know, managing an office or you can start by managing a team, managing an, uh, an office of engineers or, or our, you know, mm -hmm. different disciplines. Um, you could get more involved in the business development. You could get, I think that a lot of, I guess, I won't say a lot, but if you have the personal uh, drive, you would maybe take it down a path of some research or producing paper, you know, writing papers about certain topics that, that you're, that interest you presenting. You can get, oh yeah, in, that's a good you point. Get in, involved in different organizations, um, teaching, you know, providing courses or, or teaching younger engineers or, or I guess colleagues in the field. Um, so I guess it kind of depends on where your interests lie. Um, sure. I, I work with one of my partners here. He kind of knew from that he wanted to be a professor at some point in his career. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to do both. You know, he's teaching courses oh, cool. at, at UT Austin while he's a practicing forensic engineer running his own projects and, and, you know. Yeah. So the, the reason I asked that do, question is because I, I, at times in my career, I've, I've been a little bit frustrated where like, okay, you take two salespeople, one of them is selling used cars and they make great money, 90,000 a year. Right. But somebody else is selling security software and they make $400,000 a year. And it's like, okay, what is the big difference between this salesperson and that salesperson? Because should it really be? $300,000, right? So that's why I, I ask like, yeah. and so sometimes it's like, well, this skill or this discipline that you bring, if you just applied it in this other sector, it would be much more lucrative. And additionally with people management, there were times in my career where I was a bartender and I made more than my manager just because I had, that's just the structure of the industry, right? Yes, yeah. you can move up to people leadership. And yes, that's great if you're you know, really passionate about leading a team. But a lot of this, I think, comes down to where we go to work every day for money. So how can we put 
all of our considerable skills in the right bucket to maximize that. So that's where the that's where the question comes from. Maybe not a ton of that right now in forensic engineering. Uh, maybe we'll keep that to uh, car sales and bartenders. <laughs> yeah, I, I experience will will take you far if you are a self motivator and someone who enjoys to learn and is always you know, in this job. There's always something to learn. I feel like I'm learning something daily, weekly. You know, there's always each project is different. Um, each project is a new problem, a new puzzle to solve, which is something that has always uh, interested me. I've always been a, a lover of puzzles. Um, but if you're going to continue to grow your experience and get that, you know, both the breadth and the depth of knowledge specific to the work that you enjoy, I think that can take you, that'll take you far. You'll You'll see the the relationships and uh, with different clients, and you'll get the repeated work. And I think that alone, you're you'll be able to stand on your own rather than mm -hmm. just working, uh, you know, as as a number at a larger firm. Well, it sounds really cool about your career is that even though you're doing a similar function, you're experiencing different puzzles. I mean, almost continuously, right? Like your yeah. last year of working might be just as interesting as your first. I mean, it, even with all that experience that you've gained over the years. So that's, that's really neat. Are you still able to, you know, if you wanted to go into back into architecture, right? Like if the bug hit you, do you still have all the like licenses and education and all that stuff to kind of make a pivot to that or do I most, did. do most forensic engineers? It sounds like you, you might cause of your Lawrence tech double major, but I have the, the bachelor's education, but I believe I would need to obtain a master's to, mm. to meet the education requirements currently. And then similarly, as an engineer needing to be licensed, you also need to be licensed as an architect. So there's different exams and requirements to be able to hold that licensure. So it would take some time, um, but at least I've got the first four years under my no belt. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. I would be better prepared when it came to some of the licensing. I, actually, I, I say that, but then I don't actually know what all the licensing exams looks like, like I would as an engineer. So, um, so if uh, if somebody was interested in being in becoming a forensic engineer, what would they, you know, what would they kind of have to self-identify as? I mean, sounds like they have to be a pretty darn good student. I was always like a C plus math guy. I don't, I don't think I could have handled the rigor of, of getting to that first job, to be honest. So is it uh, somebody who's got a knack for, for math and physics, do you think, or do you think it's broader than that? Broader than that, you know, physics was not my strong point, but I was good at statics. If something needs to stand still, I could make it <laughs> that work, but objects in motion, not really my thing. <laughs> um, it just comes down to the self-motivation you know i hope i had a lot of that you know internally um and if to anyone i would recommend in your career just seeking out mentorship at mm. any stage of it so i think that's a big component so um if you're if you're not sure what you want to do um like i said i had never even heard of this and i think even to this day it's not really uh Taught or you don't really get exposure in your undergrad to some type of career in forensics versus 
such a heavy design focus to be able to get the the basics down. Um, ask questions. I, you know, be curious. Uh, find internships during the summer. I think to kind of figure out if, if that's what you want to do. I I had figured out. You know, once I was exposed to it, I kind of figured out. You know design, structural design really wasn't what I wanted to do. It was a lot of, you know, some projects could, you could be working on the same project for years, um, working on small components of that project doing design, where the forensic field, every project is different. Uh, every project is new. There's some projects are small and you turn them around quickly. Some projects might, might involve more work and, and hang around, but I think I like the variety of it. And so it's not real stagnant. Um, and I, yeah, I think that that's kind of where I would take it. And, and would you say that, uh, other than just becoming better through experience, um, and handling problems again and again, um, as you move, as you progress through your career, does your skill set has it, has it, in your career, has it needed to be updated or changed at all? Is there any like new advancements in either regulation or materials or, I mean, is there, is there new things coming up that you're like, Oh, I, I never really looked at this before. I guess I need to kind of relearn this or, or has it been, you're pretty much equipped with what you need. No, I think you're always learning. Um, things, the, the construction world is always learning and evolving, you know, new materials, new products, uh, new, um, and so you want to stay, familiar with different types of materials that are that are being employed now um is some of that covered under your continuous education requirements it could be the continuous education it's more it's the requirements are more broad but you have a lot of individual choice on what you want to study with those credits so you know each state might require you take a minimum uh, i think the average is about 15 hours of continuing education each year, um, a minimum of one of those has to be in some type of ethics to meet mm. the ethics requirement. Um, but you could, it could involve, you could get continuing education through taking a university course by uh, attending a conference and, and guest lectures through that. You could obtain your, it through writing papers. So the research that goes into that. Um, different, uh, different organizations provide either, you know, on-demand webinars or live mm -hmm. webinars, in-person, um, meetings where they're, e they're teaching you something, you know, so you're always kind of learning. You can kind of choose what, what interests you. Um, I feel like I gravitate more towards materials and, you know, the investigative side of things rather than the nitty gritty design of one type of component that I'm never going to use like that. That's not going to help me in my career right, right. to go learn about something that I, I'll never see. What um, is uh? so what, what's a bad day in the office look like for you? And what's a good day in the office look like for you? Day is good. If you can. <laughs> I think it's tend to agree. the people you are surrounded by um, you're, the people you work with. Mm -hmm. make it a good day or make it a bad day. Um, so finding the right company culture that fits your personality and, uh, and your desires in life. Um, 
as I've grown, you know, the work-life balance has definitely shifted, you know, mm -hmm. fresh out of school. I'm sure you could tell I was a go-getter and I didn't mind putting in the long work hours. I would volunteer for, you know, send me on the work trips and, and, and things like that. Cause I just didn't have the other obligations, but being able to be home when needed and available, that's, what's important now. So, um, but you don't I ever come into the that, office and you're like, Daniel, I got another one of these TPS reports. Like, I hate it when I get these stupid TPS reports. Like, is there is there anything that comes across your desk that, like, as soon as you see it, you're like, this is the worst part of my job. I just can't stand these. <laughs> uh, necessarily, but I would say I never imagined that writing reports would be what I would end up doing as a career. I was never one through school to enjoy writing English classes. They weren't for me. But technical writing, I will, if, if that's you and you're listening to this, technical writing is a different skill. <laughs> it's easier. No, good. I would say. I, I you know, um, so sometimes working on a big report, that can be frustrating if, if there's, you know, you just have deadlines that are piling up with multiple projects and if writing really isn't for you. That's where I think I would struggle the most is just staying engaged to get it done efficiently that's kind of ironic to me that like that you, you spend all this time and academic rigor in like sort of the quantitative realm and then you're like all right now we need that written in a like a deposition report and you're like okay so not only do i have to be like a people person with my client and make sure that they like me not only do i have to be data and quantitative and observant like in the field to get all this stuff but now i need to actually put it into words in a report and submit it it's like a, a good whole communicator, a great communicator, right? In both <laughs> written and, and uh, verbal. Wow. That's, I can see that, that being a lot. Are there, are there moments where, um, you know, you, the team all busts out a bottle of champagne and is like, Hey, we did it. Like, is there at the, at the end of a big case or something where you feel like you've cracked the, cracked the case, so to speak. And now you're like, great job team. You know, are, are those the good days? Definitely. There's great celebrations, happy hours. There's, it, I mean, I've, I've taken it as far as scheduling myself a spa day the next day, because I have put in so much work. I've put in so much time. I'm done. I don't have to think about it. Yeah. So enjoy life. But um, yeah, there's been projects. I've worked with colleagues literally through the night to finish these large projects, certain deadlines you have to meet. You, you have to do what you have to do to get it done. I mean, if it's, if it is being relied upon specifically in like the court system, you can't miss those deadlines. Right. Um, and so it, it can be a team effort, late night calls and, and emails and office uh -huh. nights just to get those done. But it, it, then, then it's nice to go celebrate and not have to think about it. That is one nice thing. Once you, usually once you write the report, you've got, to breathe <laughs> so i i've spent with my uh, teammates from business school more than one you know all-nighter writing a paper that was due the next day but ours was never going to be a, a matter of permanent public record <laughs> like yeah. like i imagine yours might be so that's just wild that uh yeah. that you know you that type of product of of working in those environments just like trying to get it done and then it gets out there and you're like well that's there forever 
Yeah. So. And, and that's what I think where I put a lot of internal stress and I would hope that most engineers would as well. It, it has to be right. It, it can't be wrong. It, it uh, you know, you are dealing with the facts, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's your answers are dependent on the real world application. It's not like you can skew them and write it a certain way to look pretty out. And so you're presenting those in a way that people can understand them. Um, and usually people that don't have the technical background that you do. Um, so it can, yeah, it's definitely stressful at times. <laughs> I think the one of the most stressful was first report after obtaining your individual license. That is your stamp and seal on the report. That is your name behind it. You will be the one answering to that report. That was a big deal, right? Helping to write these reports. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my name, my seal, my engineering license related to it, you know. Although I would have to answer questions, I'm sure, but sure, <laughs> it was a whole new ball game when it is your your livelihood, your 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 right. Uh, and and if they find something that's like like negligence in your reporting, right? Like you could have your license revoked. Hundred percent. There's and and there could be criminal charges. There, the board they have right. they have rules in place. Depending on what it is, yes, there could be some serious consequences. Yeah, I think I that. Mean, you know, I, I, I would hope that most professionals don't really uh, come even close to any of those uh, you know levels, but uh, but yeah, you're, you know you're you're doing an important work that's got real consequences to it, right? Yeah. As an engineer, our our number one priority is to protect the life, safety, and health of the general public. And so, as a design engineer, you know you're going to need to make sure your buildings are going to stand up. Right. It's cool that it They're looks like a fruit loop, but it has to make sure that, you know, it has to it, protect the people, the public. Um, and same goes on the on the back end of it, as on the engineering side of it, too. So if if we're on site looking at something for our clients and we see an unsafe condition completely unrelated, we still have an obligation to to say something and to speak up and to and to make sure that the public is safe. So, yeah, that's yeah. our number one goal. If you had, um, you know, I guess my last question here would be, would you recommend this career to your younger self and would you recommend it to others? hundred percent. I wish I would have known more about it when I was younger so that I could seek out, you know, more experience through my educational background and, and kind of know like, what, what am I going to need as a forensic mm-hmm. engineer? What courses in this stage of my life would be helpful. Like I said, having that architecture license where I'm learning about different building systems, the walls, the roofs, the foundations, where they don't talk about those in engineering. I think that would have been extremely helpful to know more about the career I was headed into so that I could be better prepared. That's just me <laughs> as an overachiever there. Uh, but I would, I would definitely recommend it. It's, it's got the variety. It's exciting. You can see some really cool things. Um, and it's one big puzzle. So. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Shasta. I think we all know a little bit more about uh, what a forensic engineer is, how we can become them, and how they're keeping uh, what is it, the, the, pay, the places, people, and general public safe, right? Protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. <laughs> the people. <laughs> yeah. The people. <laughs> I love it. No, I think we got it. It'll be fine.
good. It'll be fine. It'll just get it in the, in the cutouts. So we can stop the recording.